I'd like us to turn now to Revelation chapter 7. Revelation chapter 7 and the first verse. And after these things I saw four angels standing on the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, nor on the sea, nor on any tree. In chapter 6, John has been describing God's severe judgment upon the persecutors of Christ's church and upon the Christ-rejecting Old Covenant nation. This judgment has been represented by the cataclysmic symbolic language of, for example, verse 13 of chapter 6 where we read, And the stars of heaven fell unto the earth, even as a fig tree casteth her untimely figs, when she is shaken of a mighty wind. So there we have a reference to the destructive power of the wind. Now here in chapter 7 and verse 1 we have a further reference to the wind coming in destroying power upon the land and the sea, the effect of which is most obviously seen in the movement of the trees. The wind is depicted here as being controlled by four angels located at the four points of the compass. The angels however are for the time being holding the wind back from its destructive course. We read in verse 2 and I saw another angel ascending from the east having the seal of the living God and he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was given to hurt the earth and the sea, saying, Hurt not the earth, neither the sea, nor the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. Till we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. So John now sees a further angel in addition to those four who control the wind. The fifth angel appears rising up from the horizon in the east, causing us to think of the sunrise. This is appropriate because the angel is bringing a confirmation or a seal of new life and protection to sustain life. The angel from the east, we are told, carries the seal of the living God. 
A seal denotes ownership and it denotes protection. The Lord marks out or seals as separate from the rest of men those who are his by faith in Christ, those who are his true servants. And so notice there in verse 3 that it is the servants of God who are being sealed. These servants, or the word could even be translated slaves, are the same as those mentioned right at the beginning of this book, in the very first verse of the book of Revelation. Meaning, the believers then alive, whom the Lord desires to seal before the judgment falls upon all those around them. So this is how the book of Revelation begins. And it's whenever we read through Revelation, it's always good regularly to go back to the beginning to set the context, particularly the context in terms of time. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. Not things which must in the far future come to pass, but things which must shortly come to pass. So John is writing, as all the New Testament writers do, to address the people of his own day. So the servants of our God, uh, here in chapter 7 and verse 3, are those whom John is addressing through this whole book, namely all the believers in Christ in the period when he writes. And he is addressing them in the context of that which will soon take place, namely the destruction of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple, and the abolition of the whole Old Testament system of worship. Now for a Jew, nothing could be more cataclysmic than that. John is addressing believers who are to be sealed. And so here are words of encouragement for the believers. Now those who are to be sealed fall into two categories. We read in verse 4 of the first category. And I heard the number of them which were sealed. And there were sealed an hundred and forty and four thousand of all the tribes of the children of Israel. Now let us note here that John does not say that he sees the numbers 
of those who are to be sealed. But only that he hears their number. And that number is 144,000. John hears the number because it would not be possible to see a number which is symbolic rather than actual. This is a symbolic number. The Jehovah's Witnesses say it is a literal number. It is a symbolic number. Now, again, we cannot understand the book of Revelation without first knowing the Old Testament. The book of Revelation is not a book of riddles. It is a book firmly grounded in the Old Testament. If we know the Old Testament, we will understand the book of Revelation. The, this imagery of sealing God's servants in view of impending calamity is taken from Ezekiel chapter 9 and verse 4. Ezekiel 9 verse 4, which speaks of a man clothed with linen, which had the writer's inkhorn by his side. This man is the angel of the Lord, the second person of the Trinity. And there in Ezekiel 9, he marks out those who truly belong to God to protect them from the coming destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonians in Ezekiel's day. John's readers would have been familiar with this very similar occurrence in Ezekiel 9 to what he is now describing here in this vision in Revelation 7. These 144,000 sealed ones have the particular characteristic, we note, of coming from the 12 tribes of Israel. What John is being presented with immediately prior to the fall of Jerusalem in his day is the full number of Jews who have accepted Jesus Christ as Messiah and who are sealed by God as his servants. At this particular time, the Jews generally were the special objects of hatred. And the danger to Jewish Christians was particularly great. This was true not only at Jerusalem, but in all those cities where Jews lived and where conflict was raging in the Roman Jewish war. The Jewish converts would be subject to special danger, not only from those who hated the Jews generally, but also from the persecution of the Jews themselves against them. Nevertheless, 
this vision here is the announcement that these Jewish believers in Christ will be sealed and will be kept safe. These 144,000 are the select number of the Jews who were reserved for mercy at the destruction of Jerusalem. That destruction took place in AD 70. They are reserved for mercy because they have put their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Messiah promised to them throughout the Old Testament scriptures. Being forewarned, these Jewish believers were in fact able to escape the horrific slaughter which would take place in the nation's capital city at the hands of the Romans. In the final destruction of Jerusalem, the Jewish Christians were all enabled to escape beforehand. They escaped to a city called Pelah, and none of the Christians perished with the unbelieving Jews. This teaches us that none of those shall be lost whom God has marked and sealed for salvation. So these 144,000 are the Israelite-Jewish foundation of the great Gentile harvest to come in the New Testament period as the gospel is preached in all the world. These 144,000 are the Jewish first fruits of the New Testament church. Here then is a message of hope. The Old Testament nation is going to be totally obliterated. But that is not the end of God's Israel. For some Israelites, according to the flesh, are sealed because they have trusted in Christ, David's greater son. The old earthly city of Jerusalem is to be superseded by something far better. Israel's great hope is now the infinitely superior heavenly Jerusalem, which is a spiritual and an eternal kingdom. To recapitulate, therefore, this 144,000 is a symbolic number, representing the faithful remnant out of Israel, the Jews who have trusted in Christ, the Jews who accept the Lamb of God for salvation.
Now, 144,000 is a multiple of 12. 12 in the Bible is always the number which represents the people of God in the world as distinct from the rest of men. So we are told that there are 12,000 sealed in each tribe. Regarding the number 1,000, it is 10 to the power of 3, 10 being the number of fullness in the decimal system. So 1,000 equals a multiplied fullness. We are told in verse 5 here, of the tribe of Judah were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Reuben were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Gad were sealed 12,000. We note that in this list of the 12 tribes, Judah is mentioned first, although Judah was not Jacob's firstborn son. But Judah is mentioned at the beginning because the Lord Jesus Christ is of the tribe of Judah, Israel's Messiah. Reuben, who was Jacob's firstborn, is referred to second in this list. Then in verse 6 we read, of the tribe of Asa or Asher were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Nephtalim were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Manasses were sealed 12,000. We are receiving here a picture of the ideal Israel. Israel as it was always meant to be. The holy army of God mustered for battle according to her thousands. That was the way in which Israel militarily was divided up into thousands. We read in verse 7 that the tribe of Simeon was sealed 12,000, of the tribe of Levi was sealed 12,000, of the tribe of Issachar was sealed 12,000. This is not meaningless repetition. The fact that each of the 12 tribes is referred to is telling us that God has his true people amongst all the nation. Now we have a reference here to Levi being amongst the 12 tribes. Levi is often not included in lists of the 12 tribes because it possessed no separate tribal territory. There wasn't an area of land which was belonging to the tribe of Levi. Nevertheless, the Levites, of course, had a very important role in Israel's life. They were dedicated 
to the auxiliary ministry of the priests, helping the priests in all their vital work in the tabernacle and the temple. Levi is included in the list of 12 tribes here, although it had no tribal territory. It is in fact put instead of the tribe of Dan. We don't find the tribe of Dan referred to here, but we do find the tribe of Levi. Why is the tribe of Dan excluded from this list? Dan was the great ringleader in idolatry, leading the people into the worship of the false gods of the surrounding nation. So Dan is excluded, its memory being blotted out for its wickedness. Whereas Levi, or though it had no tribal territory, is included, teaching us also that under the new covenant, the possession of land is not the key. Verse 8, of the tribe of Zebulun were sealed 12,000, of the tribe of Joseph were sealed 12,000, of the tribe of Benjamin were sealed 12,000. Now, interestingly, Joseph is referred to here so as to represent the tribe of Ephraim. There wasn't actually a tribal territory called Joseph. Um, we have rather the tribe of Ephraim. Ephraim was Joseph's son, uh, as was Manasseh. Benjamin is named at last in this list of the tribes. This is appropriate in that he was the youngest of Jacob's sons. So we have the listing of the 12 tribes. And then we read in verse 9, After this I beheld, and lo, a great multitude, which no man could number, of all nations, and kindreds, and people, and tongues, stood before the throne, and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palms in their hands. After hearing the number of those of Israel, who have been saved and sealed, John now moves on to a second category of sealed ones. John now actually sees, as opposing to just hearing the number, he now actually sees an even greater multitude of people. This time not just from Israel, but from every nation upon the earth. By the time that John writes, the gospel has already been preached in many nations, and many Gentiles are being brought into the kingdom. These redeemed ones are wearing white robes, white being the colour of victory. Those who have trusted in Christ have victoriously overcome the evil one. 
We note here in this verse 9 that they have palms in their hands. Palms are an emblem of triumphant peace and joy. They are also a symbol of festivity. Here is great encouragement for those being sorely persecuted to see the believers victorious and in the presence of God. Here also is vital teaching telling us that the maintenance of the earthly nation of Israel and its temple is not the ultimate goal for God's people but that there is a better and an enduring nation and city, namely the heavenly Jerusalem. Verse 10, And they cried with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God, which sitteth upon the throne, and unto the Lamb. Those saved by Christ, the Lamb of God, from all nations are offering praise for their salvation. Although we are not specifically told so, this enormous congregation of the saved from amongst the Gentiles are also sealed and set apart under God's special protection, just as the 144,000 were. The sealing of all these saints is understood and assumed and therefore needs no second mention because all believers in Christ out of every nation are sealed by the Holy Spirit. Furthermore, because John is seeing men out of all nations, the 144,000 sealed ones of Israel will be included in this innumerable multitude which John now sees. So Jew and Gentile together are making up the Jew, the new covenant church. Jew and Gentile are coming together to form one church, one body. The focus of John's vision is particularly upon those believers in Christ currently living upon the earth, upon the church militant. Although the redeemed of countless previous generations are obviously present there in heaven as well. But the focus is upon the church militant, those serving Christ on the earth right now. We read in verse 11, And all the angels stood round about the throne, and about the elders and the four beasts, and fell before the throne on their faces, and worshipped God. The phrase, all the angels, refers to the whole heavenly host, as opposed to the cherubim, who are nearest of all, to God's throne. The four beasts are those referred to in chapter 4 and verse 6, being cherubim 
the highest order of angels, those who are nearest to the throne of God. We also have a reference there in verse 11 to the elders. These are the 24 enthroned elders who symbolise the church of the Old and New Testaments based upon the 12 patriarchs and the 12 apostles. Then we read in verse 12, they were saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honour and power and might be unto our God for ever and ever. Amen. So let us note here the word Amen at both the beginning and the end of the declaration by the angels and the elders. This word is being used in a very deliberate sense. We see the angels and the elders acknowledging all God's attributes, especially in his work of salvation. The word Amen means in truth, most certainly, so be it. Most certainly is God worthy of all praise and honour for his mighty work of redeeming undeserving sinners. So we are being taught here that the salvation of sinners is the very heart of the Christian message. The elders and the angels are not praising God for the work of creating social equality or abolishing poverty. They are praising God for the work of salvation from sin. Verse 13, And one of the elders answered, saying unto me, What are these which are arrayed in white robes, and whence came they? One of the twenty-four elders asks John this rhetorical question, so that he can then impart to the Apostle John the vital significance of this vision. And so, John sees those who are arrayed in white robes. Now white, as we have already mentioned, is the colour of victory. Believers from every nation, those who trust in Christ, have defeated Satan. They have overcome, they have the victory over this world. Verse 14, And I said unto him, Sir, thou knowest. And he said unto me, so the elder is now going to describe more fully the significance of these who are arrayed in white robes. These are they which came out of great tribulation and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. This section of chapter 7 from verse 9 is describing the saints' victorious life here on earth. 
In this great multitude, we see the church victoriously praising God and serving him in his temple, which is the true church. So as we just stated, we are focusing upon the church militant upon the earth. We note in this verse 14 that the elder tells John that those arrayed in white robes are clothed in such a way because those white robes have been made white in the blood of the Lamb. You see, these believers in Christ are victorious because they have been cleansed from their sin through the shed blood of Christ. Now we further note here in verse 14 that those in white robes came out of great tribulation. The verb for came out in the Greek is actually in the present tense meaning that believers are continuing to come or are about to come out of tribulation. So we can look upon them as having come or in the process of coming. Now, John here is contemplating a definite tribulation concerning the near future. These are those who are coming out of great tribulation. And the Greek actually allows us to add the definite article, who are coming out of the great tribulation. And as we saw at the very first verse of Revelation, John is referring to the near future. Where have we heard the term Great Tribulation before? We have heard it in the mouth of the Lord Jesus Christ in what is called his Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24 and verse 21. Matthew 24, 21, our Lord says, For then shall be great tribulation such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time no nor ever shall be and except those days should be shortened there should no flesh be saved now in Matthew 24 there speaking of great tribulation our Lord is referring to the imminent judgment upon the old covenant nation which has rejected Christ. Those who have repented of sin and trusted in Christ for salvation are the ones coming out of this tribulation, this imminent judgment. They are cleansed by means of the shed blood of the Lamb. Their coming out of tribulation does not mean that they are exempt from suffering or even martyrdom. But it does mean that they are exempt from the judgment coming upon Israel and its capital, Jerusalem. Because these who are wearing white robes 
now belong to an infinitely better city, the heavenly Jerusalem. Verse 15, Therefore are they before the throne of God, and serve him day and night in his temple. And he that sitteth on the throne shall dwell among them. Now it is only those who have placed their confidence in Christ and his atonement who appear before God's throne. John is describing here in verse 15 the position of believers in Christ even while still alive on this earth. Verse 15 applies to us right now. Right now we as believers in Christ are serving him in his temple. Now yes, these believers are depicted as being before God's throne in heaven. But that is their status. You see, all believers in Christ are citizens of the heavenly Jerusalem, even whilst alive on this earth. We are said by Paul in Ephesians 2 and verse 6 to sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Let us also notice in this verse 15 that the saints, as we have mentioned, are currently serving Christ in his temple. Christ is dwelling amongst us by his spirit now. Not, not in the future. He is dwelling amongst us now. We are the temple of God now, 1 Corinthians 3:16, Paul says, "Ye are the temple of God." What a privilege it is then to belong to Christ's church right now. Now it will be an even more glorious privilege, of course, when we are in heaven. But let us not underestimate the privilege which we have right now. Verse 16, they shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more, neither shall the sun light on them, nor any heat. Believers in Christ no longer have spiritual thirst or hunger. That is our situation here on earth, because we are being fed by him who is the bread of life. Now again, to understand verse 16, we need to know the Old Testament. And that's why we read from Isaiah 49 earlier on. Verse 16 refers to Isaiah 49 and verse 10, which is a passage foretelling the coming redemption which Christ provides describing it in terms of the removal of oppressive heat. Neither shall the sun light on them, nor any heat. So when you come to Christ, you're, you're no, no longer thirsting in, in a hot, arid desert, but, but, but you are protected. 
together. And that is the picture being given us here in verse 16. And then we read in verse 17. For the lamb which is in the midst of the throne shall feed them. And shall lead them unto living fountains of waters. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. Being led unto living fountains of waters is the privilege of the believer in Christ now. We could not be Christians if we had not been led to the fountain of living waters. When a man repents of sin and comes to the Saviour, to the Lamb of God, the tears of having been a rebel and lost in sin are wiped away. Now, yes, this privilege of being fed and refreshed by Christ will be most fully enjoyed in heavenly glory. But let us not underestimate our present status as being living stones in God's temple. Let us rejoice in this our privilege of being sealed by God, of being protected from the terrible fiery condemnation which sinners deserve. Let us rejoice in our belonging not to an earthly city, which was soon to be destroyed, but to a heavenly city, the heavenly Jerusalem. John writes at a time when terrible judgment is coming on a Christ-rejecting nation. But those who trust in Christ no longer trust in an earthly city and temple because they are part of the eternal temple where they are continually fed and refreshed by the Saviour. Let us today, like the saints in John's day, rejoice that we have come out of the tribulation of remaining in this Christ-rejecting world and that we now belong to God's true Israel, the Church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us rejoice that we are sealed and kept safe for all eternity. Amen. Oh,